0: Acts 24, 1 through 27. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus. They brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this. In every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they accuse me now. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law And that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In this view, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation, if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet to have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But after he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and to converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. The Word of the Lord. After our journey through the Lenten season, through much of the wintertime, we're now returning to our series in the book of Acts. And it's been a while since we've taken a look at this stuff. In fact, it's been since January 17th. So I'm going to just give us a short recap. You might recall that at the beginning of Acts, Jesus had already been resurrected from the dead and he was interacting with his disciples. And he tells them that they are supposed to wait in Jerusalem until power comes from on high. And when that happens, they're going to be his witnesses in Judea, um, in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is this these concentric circles of not only places and geography and distance, but also of different ethnicities and religions the further they go out. And sure enough, the resurrected Jesus ascends into the heavenly realm, and shortly after, the Holy Spirit fills the disciples of Jesus— the women disciples, the men disciples, and presumably the children disciples. And they begin declaring the good news of Jesus and his reign on earth to all the people who were gathered there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now, in story after story in the book of Acts, we follow different spirit-filled disciples of Jesus who are sharing the good news with all kinds of different people. And we see a, a sort of clashing of kingdoms coming together. On the one hand, we see God's kingdom breaking in by producing joy and worship gatherings, sharing of economic resources, prayer, study of scripture, the breaking down of ethnic barriers and gender inequalities. And we see people being rescued from idolatry, freed from sin and shame, and healed from spiritual oppression. We see diverse communities sprouting up, all centered on Jesus, all centered on the common baptism into Jesus, on the common table of communion hosted by Jesus. And we see the commonality of faith in Jesus that holds together different groups of people, people that differ in politics and gender and ethnicity and wealth or poverty, social status, and other forms of identity. And all of those barriers seem to to break down and people stay together because of Christ in the middle. But on the other hand, outside of of that group of people, we see conflict. For every person that's liberated by the kingdom of God, there seems to be another group who are bought into the systems of the world. So whether it's in idolatry to empire or in social status or local provincial power or religious authority, wherever the gospel breaks in, there's always resistance among those who want to cling to the ways of the world. Now, from a worldly perspective, you could sum up the Jesus movement by uh, the accusation we see in Acts 17, where they declare, These followers of Jesus are upsetting the world! Well, yes. Yes, they are. It's the natural outcome of following Jesus. In a world that promotes injustice, that kind of world ought to be upset by the followers of Jesus. A world that promotes racism ought to be upset by the followers of Jesus. A world that treats creation as an end to an economic means ought to be upset by the followers of Jesus. And a church that has compromised its witness by collaborating with nationalism and empire and injustice, that kind of church ought to be upset by the conviction of the Spirit and Scripture and prophetic preaching. Now, most of these very themes have come up over and over again in our walk through Acts. And I've preached on them, and I'm going to keep preaching on them. But it seems to me that today, uh, the text goes one level under the surface. So in our text today, we really get to address our deepest longings. You know, experts from multiple disciplines, from biology and sociology to philosophy and psychology and theology, they all tend to agree, in general, that humans are much more controlled by our longings than by our intellectually held beliefs. We're far more likely to follow our appetites and our feelings than we are to follow some sense of moral obligation or uh, a set of external rules. And that's why a major portion of spiritual formation is not just focused on doctrines, but it's focused on rightly ordering our affections. Good spiritual formation involves shaping our longings and our desires. Since we're most prone to do what we desire anyway, it would make sense to have Christ-like desires, right? Like, that, that makes sense. There are thousands of books about spiritual formation and rightly ordering our affections. The process of forming rightly ordered affections or longings is a journey that takes a lifetime. And I'm not going to get into the weeds in this preaching moment about spiritual formation. But I have noticed throughout the book of Acts that there's one event in particular that seems to have made the difference in the way that followers of Jesus have reshaped their longings. And that one event is the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the resurrection, people who follow Jesus don't need to fear not having enough, or not having power, or not having prestige, or not having worldly influence or worldly praise. Because of the resurrection, followers of Jesus are not crazy to live for something much bigger than themselves. And so in this story, in the book of Acts, Paul has been all around the Mediterranean world sharing the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. And he's done this sharing at great personal cost, like been beat up and stoned and left for dead and all kinds of things. And along his journey, he's been collecting financial um, financial donations from the Gentile territories to help support the church in Jerusalem, which was going through a very difficult time. And in fact, it's that financial contribution, that collection, that brings Paul to Jerusalem in in the section of Acts that we're in today. He goes to the temple there, and he's met with resistance. The religious leaders don't want him around because he's been living among Gentiles and sharing the news of the Jewish Messiah with them. Now, in chapter 23, there's a mob trying to do violence against Paul. And the text says that they tried to literally tear him apart. And the Roman official there, remembering that Paul was a Roman citizen, literally carries him away to safety. And then we get this sort of story, it's kind of like a political thriller. Paul's nephew learns of a conspiracy against him. A band of fanatics agrees to fast from food until they can assassinate Paul. And so his nephew informs the authorities, and in the middle of the night, surrounded by a guard of 200 Roman soldiers, Paul is taken in secret from Jerusalem up the coast to Caesarea. The Roman governor of Caesarea and those parts around there was named Felix, and it's in the court of Felix where Acts 24, our text for this evening, takes place. Now, the first thing we see is that Felix decides to hold Paul in custody until his accusers can arrive from Jerusalem. And sure enough, five days later, the religious leadership from Jerusalem comes to present their case against Paul. Now, on the surface, this is just another court case. A man is accused of breaking some provincial laws, and the authorities want to bring him to justice. But if we look deeper, we see that this is no ordinary case it reveals the deeper longings of everyone involved. First of all, notice who is present. In a normal case of a legal infraction, the Jewish leadership would have sent maybe a delegation of lawyers or representatives to make their argument. But in Acts 24, we read that Ananias the high priest himself, along with some of his elders, made the journey to accuse Paul personally. More than that, they brought this man named Tertullus, in many English translations, it says that this man was an attorney or a lawyer. But in, Greek, in the Greek text, it says that he was a horator. Uh, that's the, Eng- the, the root from which we get our English r- word rhetoric. So in other words, they, they don't bring a legal expert. They brought a professional orator, a speaker, uh, a public speaker, to persuade Felix rather than to prove their case with facts and witnesses. They, too, understand that humans make choices based on feelings and longings a lot more than they do with mere facts and data. So before we look at this case against Paul, let me explain something to you about Felix and his potential longings. See, Felix was a former slave, and he'd been emancipated and brought into upward mobility in status as a favor from Emperor Claudius. Now, Sometimes when people of humble beginnings rise to positions of power, they're humble and empathetic. But that wasn't the case for Felix. He tasted the good life, and his longing was to keep it. Now, How could a Roman governor of a provincial state stay in the good graces with the Roman Empire? How could he maintain his position? Well, that's where things get complicated. As Rome grew as a population, in a population density, and as Rome advanced its war machine and its tastes for the finer things in life, it quickly outpaced its ability to be supported by local farmers. Rome was absolutely dependent on the breadbasket of Egypt, on the olive oil of Greece, and the vineyards and flocks of Palestine and other conquered lands. And the job of provincial governors like Felix was to make sure that the locals paid their taxes, gave their percentages of food and consumables, and didn't become pests or annoyances through revolts or protests. Now for all you Hunger Games fans out there, think of Rome as the capital and the other provincial lands as the districts, each one oppressed in its own way and responsible for feeding the capital. Now, Felix didn't have biblical faith. That is, he didn't believe in a God who would hold him accountable. He didn't believe in a resurrection or new creation. He was an ancient materialist. That means his whole reality, including his longings, were centered on what would make him happy today and tomorrow and the rest of his life. Anything or anyone who threatened the status quo of Felix's happiness would need to be taken care of. Felix, like all of us, was a man who lived to pursue his longings. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have the high priest in Jerusalem and his elders from the class of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in resurrection either. The high priesthood was appointed to their positions uh, by Roman authority, at least in this time period. Their job was to go ahead and allow the common people to do their religious thing at the temple as long as they didn't cause a disturbance. As long as the religious leaders kept the peace, as Rome defined peace, then the leaders were afforded a a certain level of power and income and status. So just to sum this up, it was in the best interest of Felix and the priesthood to maintain the status quo. Don't allow anyone or anything to stir things up so they could just hold on to pursuing their longings. Now, with that in mind, let's briefly look at this orator, this hired gun of rhetoric, and, and see what he says about Paul. Keep in mind, a typical professional speech like this in the ancient world would last one or two hours. Like most ancient historians, Luke compresses the sermons and speeches and acts to highlight the main points, but also to allow them to fit on a scroll. Tertullus starts wisely by flattering Felix. Let's listen to what he says. Since we have through you attained much peace... And since, by your providence, reforms are being carried out in this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and in every place, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. There's really not a shred of truth to this opening statement from a Jewish point of view. At that very moment in history, as Tertullus was spouting all this junk off, Caesarea was split down the middle between Jews and Gentiles. The tensions were right on the surface, and within ten years of this trial, Felix would order the genocide of thousands of Jews in his city. But the orator employed his formidable craft to appeal to one of the longings of Felix, his longing for affirmation as a successful Roman governor. Now, dripping with false humility, the orator then paints this picture of Paul and the followers of Jesus as troublemakers, literally as pests. Being a pest or a loimos in Greek. Now, kids, don't blame me if you start calling your siblings or friends at school loimoses, like pests. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to get at here. I- I- anyway, it's more than just a term of annoyance, right? it's a colloquial word used to describe a political instigator or dissident. In other words, Tertullus is presenting Paul to Felix as a person who is a threat to his longing for political status quo. Tertullus claims that Paul desecrated this temple, and then you could almost imagine him putting on a sad voice, and then the Roman soldiers violently took him out of our hands, as if They had it all under control, and then the Roman jurisdiction muffed things up. And this would probably also make Felix feel good about himself, because it was Roman authority in some other jurisdiction, not his. That wouldn't happen in Caesarea, of course not. Now, before I get to Paul's response, I just want to name what's going on here in the story. In every age, in almost every culture, those with power Those who long to preserve the status quo rather than seek the justice of Jesus, they're going to leverage slippery speech and professional wordsmiths to frame minorities and dissident movements in a negative light. Immigrants are framed as dirty, lawless, thieves, and threats. Dark-skinned suspects are described as dangerous-looking, threatening, or angry while white suspects are often described as they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or they looked disturbed or they were acting uncharacteristically in sexual assault cases there's a great detail uh, a great amount of detail given to what a woman was wearing at the time while male perpetrators tend to you know get a free pass until they're absolutely convicted and guilty they're held up by their past reputations the irony in this story is that the religious leaders, followers of Yahweh, are using the tools of empire, the ways of the world, to deal with Paul. Suspend reality for a moment, and let's assume that Paul was a heretic, and that he really was a threat to the Jewish people. Would it still be justified to bring in an orator and make false charges about the man? Well, not if you've read the Old Testament, God is constantly saying, don't trust the ways of the world. If you're in trouble, don't go to Egypt or to Babylon or to Syria looking for help against your enemies. Call me. Call me and do the things I've asked you to do. Pursue justice and I will protect you. I believe Jesus says the same thing to us and to any local church about not seeking alliances with political power in order to try and accomplish kingdom goals. Yes, absolutely, we are supposed to be a blessing to our community. And yes, we're to live peaceably as possible with the governing authorities. But we are not to blur the distinction of modern political states, even the United States, and the very much other kingdom of God. Those are separate things all the time. This tactic used by Tertullus is one of the ancient human tactics used to spin truth to serve the pursuit of our wayward longings. Now, in this story, Paul is in serious trouble. I mean, Tertullus has just handed him up on a platter to Felix. He's played to all of Felix's insecurities and this is looking dire. The narrative suspension, uh, suspense is, is heightened. But it just so happens that Tertullus has met more than his match. Paul was a scholar, a preacher, and a spirit-filled apostle of Jesus. And so Paul begins to make a defense in a very calm manner. Uh, at least that's how the words come off on the page to me. He simply points out the basic facts like Tertullus is a liar. Like, it's illegal to bring these charges before a magistrate without witnesses or any evidence. The Jewish leaders had none of these. No witnesses, no evidence. Now, let me stop here and make an important observation. If the story ended here, if Paul simply used his amazing skill as a thinker and a speaker to counter Tertullus and the priesthood and Felix, he might be impressive. In fact, that would be impressive. But the story wouldn't be gospel. Why? Because it would have simply been a story about one of the Jesus people using his own skill to maintain the longing of self-preservation. It would be more of a gospel of winning than a gospel of the Jesus, who is the God who serves and sacrifices and loses in the eyes of the world, but is victorious to the reality and the longings of the kingdom. The question we have to ask ourselves is, where do our longings lead us? How do our longings motivate us? It's not that Paul and the apostles don't long for life. It's not that they don't long for happiness and joy and abundance. That's that's a human longing put there, I believe, by our Creator. But the bigger question is, how does one go about pursuing those longings? Tertullus and Felix and the priesthood, they assume that it's up to them to secure their own happiness. That's the message of the world. It's up to you to get what's coming to you. It's up to you to get ahead and to make a name for yourself. It's up to you to create your own identity, to find your own tribe, your own people, so that you can fit just like you want. If Paul is playing by the way of the world, He would have just stopped his testimony at that point, where he had already completely refuted Tertullus. But what we see from Paul, and in what follows, is a man who has been forever changed by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul goes on to say that if he's done anything to ruffle anyone's feathers, it's proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Clearly, Paul has defeated the baseless claims of Tertullus. Felix even dismisses Paul's accusers, says, You've got nothing on him. You go back to Jerusalem. But Felix is in a pinch. See, if he just lets Paul go, then the Jews might riot. They're already mad at him enough. So he keeps Paul in custody. And from time to time, over the course of two years, he checks in with Paul just to hear what he want, what he might say, and he hopes that Paul might bribe him to get released early. But Paul's longings are not rooted in the world. They're not rooted in the things that the world and the world powers can give him. Paul's faith in Jesus and the resurrection empowers him to live boldly, to, to place the source of his longings in God and in the future and in the new creation. And that's what gives him the boldness to confront Felix and his adulterous wife, Drusilla, when he's talking to them about things like righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come on the last day. Paul knows that the ultimate judge of all things is not our bellies. It's not our appetites. It's not our peers. It's the living God. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul puts all of his gifts and talents and life into living out the kingdom of God in his present time. Now, none of us are called to be apostles, but we are all given good work, vocation. You don't have to be paid to have a vocation. A vocation isn't necessarily your job or something that leads to a career. And in fact, most of us have multiple vocations. And the first and foremost is that of an image-bearer of God. And we're all citizens of a community. And we're all partners in kingdom work. And we all have roles within our kinship bonds and friendship groups. And we all have giftings and, and calling. And the temptation is to use our lives to satisfy temporary longings. But hear the word of the Lord Jesus has been raised. He's made a way for you through faith to be raised in the last day as well. How might you and I reorient our longings, our purpose, to focus on love and blessing and justice and on the things that won't pass away when we pass away? That's how the resurrection refocuses our longings. Thanks be to God.